I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. He'll teach you everything! Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. Here is a special audio-only version of this week's Writer's Chat. No fancy flashy intro other than the usual podcast one. Thanks so much for continuing to check this out. And we'll get back to streaming super duper soon. Promise. Just working in some audio right now. Here we go. Guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, prune enthusiasts online survey takers anybody who's ever had to like really scrub a toilet clean plant waterers anybody who's ever run a vacuum and felt immensely better about their life shoe likers fan lovers bed makers candlestick jumper overers water lovers people who enjoy horses anti Patriarchists, anti-capitalists, accordion players, xylophone lovers, typewriter owners, and most importantly, the comrades. Hi, this is the Writer's Chat for 918, and I continue to be, through no fault of my own, John Adamus. What an absolute pleasure it is to be back here in your ears to answer questions from all across social media and help you write better. A little bit of housekeeping. If you are interested and you want to support this show more fully, by all means, head over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com forward slash podcast and click either of the two buttons that show up on the screen to help support the show. Thanks so much for doing it. I really appreciate you being here. Let's go answer some questions, shall we? Question number one. What's the best way to market science fiction fantasy in 2023? This question always rolls around like the end of the year, probably because people want to look backwards and say, oh, how did I do? And hopefully use it as a prelude for 2024. It doesn't really fit. It's an odd question. It's not a bad question. People want to know how to market a book of a particular genre. But this idea, this notion that in some way, shape, or form, the year matters, that techniques are going to change so radically, so intensely, that the overall structure of what we do is going to like fly out the window, I don't know where that comes from. I guess it's that same kind of idea that we have to go get the newest iPhone because all of a sudden it won't also, you know, play music, give us text messages, stream things, and maybe occasionally make calls if we remember that it can do that. There's no substantial difference year to year about how to market. Yes, sometimes the platform is going to change. Yes, sometimes the amount of things we do per instance of marketing changes, but marketing itself is not going to change. 
it's still going to be a combination of text. It's still going to be a call to action for a link. It's still going to be, you know, something detailed, personal, and tailored to encourage someone to have an emotional reaction or a reaction to emotion and lead them to click a link and buy the book. You're still going to need to write sales copy. That doesn't suddenly stop just because the calendar changes a number. The best way to market science fiction fantasy is find those elements, however many there are, hopefully there's more than one, but find those elements in your science fiction fantasy, in the more fantastic, incredible, unbelievable, made-up spaces, and figure out how to relate them to your reader who is probably reading your story looking for a chance to experience something fantastic, otherworldly, or outside their lives. You want to build a bridge between the story you're presenting and their experience. You want to connect with them. You want to do it in text. You want to do it with a link. You want to do it with more than hashtags. You want to encourage them to walk away just a little bit, to catch their breath, to offer them something that's going to stir them emotionally and move forward. Your book has a transformative potential. Your book has an enjoyable potential. Your book can mean something to someone. You just need to bring it up to them and make them aware of it. That remains the best way to market science fiction fantasy no matter the year. On to question two. Question number two. How can I promote my books on Substack when Substack frowns on people using their platform for marketing? There's a section in the Substack Terms of Service. Just I think it's just before or just after they tell you not to post porn. That Substack doesn't want you marketing things. They don't want you like talking about your stuff. But then, if you pay attention to enough Substacks, you'll see an awful lot of people talking about like, hey, you can sign up for my workshop, or hey, you can get my book here, or hey, you know, you can have this thing. What they're really talking about, what's really at odds here, is this idea of secondary versus primary engagement. Here's the difference. Primary engagement is like what you see with brand names, Coke, Wendy's, Mercedes-Benz, taquitos, pizza rolls, whatever, where the brand is essentially screaming at you to buy or engage with the brand. That's a primary marketing thing. That's from the brand straight to you screaming, be capitalist and buy me. A secondary point of marketing is where you are mentioning that this thing is available, but in the sum total of what you're talking or what you're saying or what you're writing about, it isn't the only thing you're saying. You want to have a setup where you are engaging so you are engaging the people through Substack by Substack. Talking about whatever you're talking about and oh by the way, here's this link. It is a gray area and Substack wants that gray area. Because Substack knows that if you mention things on Substack, you'll come to Substack to read them. Just like any other platform, the platform wants you to keep yourself and get your readers on it because there will be subscriptions, because there will be traffic, because there will be ad data, because there will be possible signups for all number of things. 
Yes, does Substack have a bias? Does Substack seem to take a few people and make them extra de-duper special and allow them to do things that seem to be in violation of the terms of service? Yes, totally. And often that's because they're employees of Substack or they have some kind of pre-existing relationship to Substack or because, I don't know, maybe they've paid something to Substack. I have no idea how that works. But I do know loads of people market exactly on Substack and exactly the way the terms of service should ideally prohibit. And it's because there's a gray area in how direct and how limited that marketing is. If it's only marketing, they don't want it. They want anecdote, they want story, they want essay, they want thoughts, and sprinkle the marketing in. That's how you can do it. That requires you, though, to have something to say beyond the marketing. They're not a billboard. That's what loads of other social media platforms are. They want thoughtful space. They want curation. They want something that's going to engage people and keep them on the platform, which means make the paragraphs happen. Tell a story. Tell an amusing anecdote. Make it better than just a very transparent attempt to lead people down the page to click a link. I know. A whole lot of people do. I know. And it does really seem like there's a set of rules for some set, or some group of people, and rules for another group of people. I know. I know. That's a huge problem I have with Substack. However, this is the nature of the beast we have signed up for. You can market your book, just don't make it look like you're marketing your book. Great question. On we go. Question number three. What is audience shock and what do I do about it? Audience shock, well, there's, there's two kinds of audience shock. One, there's the shock that you have an audience at all. Oh my God, people like my stuff. People sign up for my this, that, or the other thing. Holy shit, that's incredible. And what you can do about that kind of audience shock is get over it. I don't know how else to tell you this. You can just accept that what you're making is great and people enjoy it and they want more of it and they're willing to support it either just by listening or, or reading or clicking or buying or whatevering. People like your stuff and that's great. And congratulations, it's wonderful. It's kind of one of the whole reasons we make stuff. We're here to serve, we're here to help, we're here to feed, we're here to nourish. Hooray! The other kind of audience shock is a bit more specific. It's a kind of audience shock that has to do with shifting from one audience to the other. I'm going to start writing a mystery novel, and then when that you know, series is over, I'm going to jump over to fantasy, or maybe in the middle of my series, I'm going to switch books and say, I offer multitudes, I also have this, I also have that, loads of different stuff. An audience shock in that regard is the ability or inability for a, some percentage of the audience to pivot. Because some audience came to you for genre number one, for book series number one, whatever it might be, and they're not interested in your forays into romance or poetry or some other thing. They like this series, they only hear for this series, they only want this series, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Some, you know, not all books are for all people. Some people just stick for one thing and don't pick up the rest. They'll give it a try, hopefully. But they need to give it a try in order to determine it's not for them. But by and large, 
audience shock on that level is their motility, their ability to stick and move and say, okay, ooh, I like this author no matter what they write, or I only like this author in this one way, and I don't like their other stuff. It happens. What can you do about it? Eh, not as much as you think. You just keep making what you're making, and the audience will sort itself out. You can't use audience size. You can't use audience activity. You can't use audience demand even as the sole reason for producing a thing. You're not making widgets. You're not at their beck and call. You're not you know, making bespoke things tailored for their exact interests. You're telling your stories. You're producing what you're producing. They'll get on board or they won't. And that's fine. The world's plenty big with plenty of audience there for you. Great question. When we go to the next. I recently started a new book and put my old book on pause. How do I know I won't put this one on pause too? You don't. You don't. There is no guarantee that you won't continue to pause and start a new thing and pause and then start a new thing and then pause and start a new thing until the cold death of the universe. One of the possible reasons why you're doing that is because you really like the excitement and thrill of a new idea. And you're chasing it down because it feels good and it's fun. Yay! But it has some downsides. Because one of the other reasons why you're doing that is because if you always have a new idea, you never have to develop the old ideas. You never have to push yourself. You never have to challenge yourself. You never have to you know, keep going when it gets hard. You never have to do a lot of planning. You never have to sit down with yourself and be disciplined. That's a really tempting reason. If I can get away from being disciplined, if I can get away from doing hard work, if I can get away from having to like you know, struggle a little bit, absolutely, I'm going to jump to the new hot thing all the time. But that means you'll never finish anything. That means you'll never learn the value of sitting down and being disciplined. That means you'll never learn the overall need to do that kind of stuff. There is no guarantee that you won't do this. There is no guarantee that you will not pause and, and pick up new and pause and pick up new. You have to be more disciplined. It's hard. It's scary. You might fuck this up. You might fail. It might not go well. You might learn that it takes a lot more effort than you thought. You might be disappointed that it's not coming faster. You might be disappointed it's not coming easier. You might be disappointed that this is really hard and you need more education. You need more craft. You need more practice. You need somebody to talk to. You need coaching. You need something. And that might not sort of fit in with your view of yourself that, oh, you were a gifted and special kid. This shit should come really easy to you. You spent your entire life being told how smart you were. Why is this so hard all of a sudden? I know. I hear you. I get it. But this cycle of do a thing until it gets hard, drop it, pick up a new thing, repeat, is killing you in the long term. It makes it impossible to build a career. It makes it impossible to sustain sales. It makes it impossible to be the published author you've always dreamt of being. Take an idea. Map it out to the best of your ability. Take it as far as you can. Push a little bit so you're just outside your comfort zone. But take it as far as you can. And if it ends up you know, fizzling out 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 words in and there's just no possible way to naturally pick it back up, kick it in the ass and keep it moving. 
then you really need to start looking at whether or not the ideas you're choosing are fully formed. It's not that you're a bad writer. It's not that, you know, if this were supposed to be how it's supposed to be, you'd be, you know, spitting out 100,000 word novels in a weekend. It's just that your ideas need more time cooking. You need to understand what shapes an idea better. You need to ask more questions. You need to challenge yourself. You need to do a little bit more reading. You need to start thinking about how to form the basis of a story. But all of that is built on the idea that you're going to, willing to, and wanting to break this cycle of do a thing, drop it, do a thing, drop it. And I really, really hope you do. Because you are so much more capable of so much better than that. Good question. On we go. Have you learned anything after doing 300 plus podcast episodes? First of all, first of all, I had no idea I had 300 plus podcast episodes. That's wild. I mean, it makes sense. I have a podcast just about every day. Sometimes there's multiple things per day. I get it. That's great. I just never really stopped to think about it because holy shit, 300 episodes. Now, while I am not the most like super disciplined and organized with things, I don't have lengthy notes. I don't have a co-host. My production is me with a laptop or me with a Mac mini. It's, you know, not in a private studio. I'm sitting here in the corner of a room with a crazy echo. I know. But what I've learned more than, you know, just having to get up and do it because that's the same attitude I have for everything. What I've learned is that you can just do these things. Like, yes, you need the equipment. It helps to have a microphone of some kind. It helps to have a recording device of some kind. Yes, you have to pay money to have a service so that you can have the podcast in the first place. But you can just do it. It doesn't require much. I'm somebody who would talk himself out of a great idea for the dumbest reason possible. So the fact that it takes me, I don't know, how long does it take me to plug in this microphone or open up GarageBand or, you know, pace around the room with a headset on? How long does that possibly take me? And I can produce something fairly intelligible somewhere in the realm of six to 20 minutes. Although if sometimes if you're like, a, if you're, into it. Sometimes I go long. I've done an hour before easily. I'm just surprised. I'm really surprised by how not difficult it is once you get started. That initial movement, that initial push is terrifying. It's overwhelming. Holy shit. I am suddenly in this field competing with the likes of all different kinds of writing podcasts, all different kinds of other podcasts, all different kinds of qualities and studios. And I'm functionally just one guy with a microphone. I might as well be in my mom's basement, you know, eating hot pockets and then trying to like scratch out a living. But hot pockets do sound pretty good right now, though. But the important thing here, the point of this is once you get started and once you commit to it and once you keep your practice pretty organized, you can do a lot. It's not hard. Not once you have, not once you have the tools in hand and not once you are willing to appear stupid a few dozen times. Some of my episodes are awful. They are boring. They are dull. They're too short. I kind of rambled. Some are too long. They need more editing. I wish they had more polish. But they're 
160-something episodes ago. I can't go backwards. Got to go forwards. I get better as I go. Another thing I've learned is that it's, it's not very time-consuming. I had a lot of fear when I started this podcast that um, it would take a while. Like, it, it, here, here, look, I'll pull the curtain back. To write a Substack, a weekly newsletter, The Writer's Secret Weapon, that goes out every Thursday, it often takes me three or four days. I probably could do it in one day if I just sat down and really just sat and did it. But because of any number of factors, from self-doubt to anxiety to boredom to, oh my God, there's a million distractions, to there's five other things I should be doing, to I don't want to do it right now. I got a big case of the I don't want us or something. I stretch out the doing of it because the, the actual writing of, I don't know, a couple thousand words is a couple hours. But I draw it out over a couple days because I spend too much time overthinking it. And I was worried I would do that with a podcast. I I'm worry that I'll turn the microphone on, there'd be a lot of dead air, there'd be me starting and stopping and starting and stopping, and it would just be this choppy mess. This one time I tried to record a YouTube video, and I edited between every single word, and it ended up sounding like a hostage tape, because I was in the middle of a panic attack, because being on camera is terrifying to me. It absolutely makes me super uncomfortable. I need anti-anxiety medication for it. It's a mess. But if you give me this microphone, and you're not looking at me, and you don't know that right now my back is turned to the computer, and I'm just talking into this microphone as if you're sitting in this room with me. In fact, I am pretending you're looking across from me on this couch. Like, I can just talk to you, and it's okay. But I was so worried that I'd overthink. I was so worried that I'd get jammed up. I was so worried that I'd find new and exciting reasons to not continue. That I am surprised I made it this far. It is as much my daily ritual as brushing my teeth, taking my meds, making sure the cats have food and water. Did I record a podcast? Is one scheduled for today? I've been doing them lately in batches. Because it's just easy. And then I sit down and I can focus during the day on longer form stuff. The other thing I found, the last bit I'll leave you with here for this question, is that I like doing it and I want to do more of it. And I want to do more things in the same medium. I love audio. I used to work in radio. It was some of the best times in my life. I loved it. It was great fun. From the production side to the to the just hanging out in the back of the studio to laughing at jokes to being with my friends. I used to love that stuff. And while I was never super comfortable, I didn't I never wanted to be that guy. I never wanted to be like the shock jock. I never wanted to be that like person on the mic, but I wanted to be the producer. I wanted to be somebody sort of behind the scenes making stuff happen, doing a little bit of work, contributing, but not necessarily being out front. What I got into podcasting and what I'm getting out of podcasting is my ability to do that. Yeah, I got to be the guy on the mic. Every podcast needs somebody on the mic. But it's mine, and I can do with it as I like. And I like doing that, and it makes me want to do more of it. So, yeah, sometimes on that newsletter, that Substack newsletter, I drop an audio episode because I can, because it's fun. For clients, I record audio. 
I, I like audio. I think it's a good medium for me. It reduces my stress while allowing me to sort of explore my thoughts. I never would have confirmed that to the degree I have without this podcast. It's great. Please keep listening. I'll keep making stuff. On we go to the next question. What's the first thing you'd tell a writer who failed to finish their last two books? That's a great question. I think the first thing I'd tell them is that your next book is not a victim of your last two books. Every book, every manuscript, every draft is a chance to do something different. You just because the last just because the last two times you ran into a problem does not mean that the third time must run into that problem. Now, chances are the problem's going to come up because it's come up more than once. Sure. That problem about finishing or discipline or organizing or whatever the problem is, it's going to come up and it's going to need to be resolved or worked on or coped with or dealt with or managed or whatever. But every book, every draft, every chapter, every page, every sentence, every word is a chance to do better and different Sometimes you want to focus on the different part. Sometimes you want to focus on the better part. Sometimes you want to put the two together. I understand that it can feel like you've just got this series of failures and nothing else. But I promise you, that cycle, you're the only one tracking it. And that cycle is ready to be busted. You just need to try. Now, maybe you're going to need to step out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're going to need to ask for help, and that's scary on its own. And maybe you're going to have to do some work that you didn't consider doing before or you didn't think was worth it. But overall, you don't have to keep making the same mistakes or keep doing the same process and hope for different results. You can do better. You can always ask for help. You can always ask questions. Even if you think, you know, like you're the two trillionth person to ask the question and everybody's sick of it ask the question get help it's scary it can be difficult to appear foolish it can be embarrassing to you know to admit hey i don't know how to do a thing but the only way we're going to get better at doing a thing the only way we're going to break our cycles and improve ourselves is by trying and doing new things and often in the course of doing new things we have to first make it clear to ourselves and by extension other people that we're not good but we'll get better if we keep going i think too many authors carry their failure baggage too far forward to the point where they even put it out in front of themselves so that every new thing that comes down the pike has to be lensed through their previous failures and then they, they erect these limitations. They dig ditches for themselves where they keep themselves from really doing something new because they're too busy trying to tell you or demonstrate to you or prove to you or something that they did poorly last time when ultimately it just doesn't matter so much. Every new book is an opportunity. Please seize it. Here we go. Next question. How many followers on social media do I need before I query? And how is that number determined? Okay, let's be super duper clear. This is traditional publishing's fault. It's their fault. They set this up. This is a situation of their own design and it fucking sucks. You don't need a certain number of people. 
in the real world. Let's step away from the, you know, what social media tells us. Let's just take a look at stuff. You can have zero people in sell books. You can have 10 people. You can have 1,000 people. You can have 100 people. You can have whatever number of people you have. And you can sell books. It's totally fine. Traditional publishing dictates that you need a large audience for two reasons. One, uh, if you're bringing a large audience to their publishing space, they have more people to sell more books, including yours, too. And two, if you have a big audience and you just put out a, a post or a tweet or an email to this big audience, you are saving their marketing department considerable effort. People at their jobs don't often like to do their jobs. So the bigger the audience you're bringing in, the less work they have to do because they're just going to dump more of the load on you. Now, to be fair, the load is already on your shoulders. No matter how you publish, you will be doing at least 80% of the marketing. At least 80%. Even if you're going to Big Giant Publisher X with a Big Giant Publishing budget, the bulk of the marketing is on you because people at their jobs don't want to do their jobs and publishers don't want to spend money. They want to make money. That's a really important point. That's something really remembering. That's significant. We, we care about that kind of thing. What matters is that instead of trying to like grow your follower count on whatever platform before you query, you grow your follower count as you're doing whatever the fuck you're doing. You asked how that number is determined. That number is pulled out of thin fucking air. There is no standardized chart. There is no best guess. There is no, you know, ideal case because somebody can say something like, oh man, having at least 10,000 people would be great. Yeah, but if you're going to say 10, I could say 20 and then 30, 40, a million, 2 million. It, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. They just picked a fucking number and convinced you that you had to have this many people to ride the ride when the reality is, you don't. You just don't. You don't need to. There's this misunderstanding that um, you either need a lot of people before you publish the book or you need the book in order to get a lot of people. And neither of those is entirely accurate because neither of those fully accepts the whole picture. If you had a lot of people up front before you published, that's great because that means you've done things outside of the book in order to grow that audience. You've been funny and personable and charming and you've been busy and engaging with people. So the book becomes secondary. That's an ideal position to be in. You know, I'm doing a million things and oh, by the way, I have this book, something I can sell to make money with. Great. The other side of this, I need the book in order to grow my audience, assumes that the only reason why somebody would listen to you or talk to you or engage with you is because of this book, which is downplaying your sense of yourself, your creativity, your engagement, your personality, your ability to coexist with other humans. I don't know why you're doing that. It misunderstands the idea that you aren't a brand, you're not a commodity you're you're just you and you can engage with people in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons all the goddamn time you can be a person and talk to them you can write a 
an email. You can send a text to your friend. You can write a book that moves somebody. You can leave a comment on a video that makes somebody's day. You can favorite a picture from your grandma. You can do loads of different stuff to engage. But this idea that publishing has to have certain requirements before you move forward is dumb. And it's unnecessary. Yes, some publishers will automatically reject you based on the size of your audience, but they're wrong. That's going to hold them back. Because at the end of the day, publishers need you and your book more than you need them and their budget. I hate, I hate that traditional publishing has put us in a situation where so many authors get paralyzed in their progress towards their goal because they think they have to do something extra in order to, you know, I got to get 2,000 followers. Why? Do you want 2,000 followers? Is that something important to you? If so, great. Go for it. Go get them. Make yourself happy. But if you're doing it entirely because it's something that somebody else told you that you had to do because you want to do other steps, consider not listening to that person because there's loads of different ways to do this. There's loads of different ways to publish. Yes, I understand you had your heart set on this one way in this one direction, but there's loads of other traditional publishers who won't give a rat's ass about your, your follower numbers. And the only reason they do is because they want to sell more shit to them. That's not about you. That's about them. Don't get hung up on the numbers. They're just made up bullshit. On we go to the next question. How can I tell when I've done enough research? Okay. First of all, um, you've never done enough research. There is never an enoughness. You can always do more. That's not the point. The, the point is this. You don't need to do so much. No one cares. It's okay. It's okay to make things up. It is okay to appear factually vague or even factually inaccurate in service of a good story. It's really all right. If somebody somewhere leaves you a comment on the internet that, that XYZ thing you have is not the way it works in the world, you're not writing nonfiction, are you? You're not writing an academic treatise or a dissertation or something on the nature of XYZ thing. No, you're telling a story about two people trying to figure some shit out. Research is a hole that so many writers get stuck in because they think, one, that having all this research done is going to make their stuff better because somehow they'll know more data and therefore be able to make it more relatable just by knowing a quantity of data. Two, they think that somebody somewhere is going to fucking fact check them. That all of a sudden, holy shit, if I don't exactly know the exact number of screws and rivets on this machine, somebody's going to complain on the internet. And therefore, when they complain on the internet, they're going to reduce their total overall number of stars I get, which is somehow going to affect the number of, you know, SEO click doohickey thingamajiggerigs that go on there and that are going to somehow lead to the algorithm never recommending my book and I'm never going to make a living and I'm going to be a failure as an author because I didn't realize that there are 14 screws, not 13 screws. And that's ridiculous. That's just goofy. The other reason is people use research as an escape from writing because research has provable, verifiable goals. 
you can demonstrate research because you can point to gained knowledge. That's different than when you're making stuff up and you're not sure it's good enough. You can always do more research, but the goal here isn't to make your fiction, I'm making air quotes, believable because you're stacking together a string of facts. Your goal in your fiction is to create a sense of this fiction is good because it includes some fact, but it also includes more relatable things that aren't fact because they deal with made up people in made up situations. It doesn't matter if you know the number of threads or the number of rivets or the last time this thing was invented. That's not important. There's not a quiz. There's no final exam. No one's double checking. When you know traditional publishing edits your work, they're going to fact check. Maybe if you keep you know banging the drum that you've got all this data, maybe. But by and large. They're not going to care because what they're looking for is a good story. What a reader is looking for is a good story. And anybody who's going to use their time, space, and patience to rattle off a list of complaints about your book, and one of them is there's not enough screws and rivets mentioned, that's not somebody's opinion who you need to sweat. Because if they read your whole book and their, their big takeaway was you got the number of screws and rivets wrong. I don't know why I'm obsessing over hardware, but let's just roll with it. If their big takeaway was that you fucked up the number of screws and rivets, and that's what they're choosing to focus on, not like, you know, the characters, the plot, the dialogue, the world building, the themes, the pacing or the climax or anything like that, why would you care? Why would you listen to them? How is that any different than the person who's just running down the street screaming the sky is falling? Don't get hung up on research. You've done enough research when you're comfortable with an amount of fact that you think you can operate from. You don't need to know everything. No one's going to care if you know everything. You don't need to be a subject matter expert. You just need to know enough to get you moving forward. And then you go to the next thing, and do I know enough to move forward? If so, yes, keep going. You only ever need just enough research. You can make up the rest. You're very smart. You're good enough to do that. Go do that. On, I'm going to go to the next question. How much marketing is good marketing? Now, I don't know if this question is asking about the quantity of marketing you should be doing or if there is a thing called good marketing and that is a percentage of the total pile of marketing as a whole. I have no idea. So I'm going to try and answer both parts of this. You should be doing enough marketing that you are both comfortable with as well as getting the word out that you have a thing available. You get to set that. If you're looking at a quantity of results and they're not to your liking, then perhaps increasing the number of times you do that marketing could lead to a larger number in the end. You don't know. You won't know till you try. Maybe it will and maybe it won't. Part of why that number is or isn't going up is not just the number of times you're saying or posting this post, but it's what you're saying in that post. Is there a call to action? Is there an appeal? Are you making statements? Is there any kind of leverage? Are you just slapping together a pitch and you know a little formulaic dull piece of drivel and two hashtags and calling it a day? If you put in low effort, you can expect lower effort results. You got to work a little bit. It's hard. Marketing is not easy. Marketing is a bespoke attempt for you to understand the relationship between emotion and the reactions it compels. 
is hard. It's not easy. It takes time. That's significant. If you're wondering if, you know, there's good marketing and bad marketing, yeah, but that's really subjective. No one's asking you to only do marketing of a certain kind and a certain type in a certain way. Sometimes you're going to write some shitty marketing. That's just the nature of this. Sometimes you're going to write marketing that only really works for like two people out of ten and eight people are going to be just kind of eh about it. And other times you're going to write marketing more or less the same thing. Maybe the words are just in a different order that really clicks with eight people and not so much the two. And that's okay. You're never going to get all ten out of ten. Stop trying because that's perfect and there is no perfect. Marketing is good when you feel best about it and when it is an honest expression of who and what you are and it accomplishes or potentially accomplishes what you're trying to. If your marketing is not doing that, if there is a lack of authenticity to it because you are just grinding out formula bullshit after formula bullshit, then yeah, your marketing is not going to get you anywhere. You might get some results, but in the end, they'll be short-lived because ultimately you will have saturated your possible consumer base. Everybody's going to get tired of you posting the same two tweets. Everybody's going to get real sick of that one photo with the five hashtags. Always be willing to do something different. You're good enough to. Just keep trying. When it works, it's good. When it's not, it's just not good yet. On we go. Next question. What would it take for me to re-release a book I've already published? Okay, this is a great question. This actually comes up a lot because sometimes people get really excited about putting out a book and then they realize down the road at six months, eight months, a year, next week, the day after, whatever, that they could do a better job. Here's the best formula for how to deal with that. Step number one, you're going to want to make sure the book is better. Maybe you wrote a, a revised ending. Maybe you put some more material in it. You've done something so the book is substantially different. I'm not talking about, hey, I finally fixed that typo on page 10, you guys. I'm talking about how you've made some substantial change. And the reason we want substantial change is because we can point that out in our marketing. We can put that in our sales copy so it becomes a new product, a new thing to sell. The degree of newness matters here. While there is no magic number, do more than a token like rewrite. I changed his name to Kevin is not enough. Make some substantial change. Then you're going to need to pull the old thing down. Now, every website, Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble has a different specific criteria to do that, but it is easily done through a matter of looking at different things on a different website and clicking the appropriate button or function or typing the magic code word into the magic box. You're going to pull the thing down, and then you are going to treat it like a brand new thing you've never done before and put the new one up. Now, note, in some cases, you can just upload the new file. Some cases will auto-update. I'm not sure what they are specifically off the top of my head, but sometimes it's just a matter of re-uploading the new file. But if you really want to come at this from scratch and you really want to walk away from the ghost inspector of the past, get rid of them. They'll still exist in some corner of the internet. That's fine. Whatever. 
But if you really only want to have the newest stuff out, take the old stuff down, put the new stuff in, treat it like it's new, and move on from there. It can be that simple. Question 11. I recently transitioned. First of all, congratulations. I hope you are feeling more comfortable, and I'm very proud and happy for you. How do I go about handling my name change as an author on my old work? Okay, you know that previous question where we change some stuff and then put new stuff up? We're going to do much the same thing here. So unfortunately, for the moment, you're going to have to deal with your dead name just a little bit longer as you make the appropriate changes. It can be frustrating. It can be something that's kind of a pain in the ass and maybe a little bit of a dagger and a sting to deal with, but it is manageable. Just make sure the manuscript has a new, you know, your correct name on it. Make sure the cover has a corrected name on it if you're going to use a name at all. Make sure the sales copy reflects that. Make sure the web page reflects that. Just use your name. I, I don't mean to make that sound trivial, but it's more a matter of, of tedium and bureaucracy than anything more profound. It will be every time you correct it to reflect who you really are. It will be a victory every time and a thumb in the eye of everyone who doubts the whole process and you know, anybody who's ever opposed you, cranked at you, complained at you, etc. You know, you're basically telling them fuck you every time you give them your name, which is the most amazing, beautiful thing in the world. It's just a matter of sitting down and ticking all the boxes and doing it. And it's okay if you forget a couple. Like, eventually, you'll round them all up. It just takes time. But you can do it. Stick with it. Keep going. And on we go to the next question. Question 12. What's the difference between a plot hole and plot convenience? Okay. Now, there is some subject and debate in film spaces and literary spaces about whether or not a plot hole exists at all or what defines a plot hole or anything like that. And it can get really contentious. Uh, I think because people summarize or take the whole fight down to, you know, I think I'm right and you think I'm wrong and it's just this kind of schoolyard thing. But we can define a few terms and we can make this conversation pretty straightforward. A plot hole is an unexplained thing or element in the story that is just taken as a skip. We just move past it. We don't, you know, talk about it. It just kind of moves along. A plot hole would be something to the effect of, Something significant. It can't just be something minor that we can write off and say, oh, it's no big deal. But a plot hole like, hey, what happened to the car after, you know, our two characters get off on foot and run away from the killer chasing them. And then all of a sudden later they're back in the car. Now that is a arguably that's a continuity error. But explaining those things gives us a chance to understand the scene better, understand the story better, understand what's going on better. A plot hole creates a gap in story with no explanation. It is not, you know, some kind of indicator that the story sucks or that you disagree or that if you were writing it, you would do different. That's a totally different thing. And most of that shit you can keep to your goddamn self. And a lot of the plot hole discussion online comes from, viewers or readers just not paying close enough attention, skimming or filling in the gaps or um, thinking they know and just sort of assuming, oh, it should be this way. She shouldn't have that superpower. Often it's, you know, something else. 
but it's it's this idea that if it's not explained to my satisfaction in a way I like, it must therefore be a plot hole. And that's not what it is. A plot hole is just an unexplained, significant, underline that a few times, element in the story that needs some kind of tying together or explanation. Plot convenience is an attempt to do that, but in a way that is the shortest, laziest way between two points. For instance, the other day, I was watching Black Adam, where The Rock pretended to be a superhero, even though he never got hurt. Um, in that movie, early on in the movie, there's a guy who says he's going to stay in the truck while the other characters go on and do the plot. And then all of a sudden, when the plot happens and our heroes who went out and left the truck guy behind come back together and everybody's back together in the truck, the truck guy discusses material that he couldn't have known because he's in the truck. Now, somewhere, somebody is going to say that's a plot hole and they're wrong. That's not a plot hole. That's plot convenience. Plot convenience is when you answer or deal with a situation in story in the easiest way possible because you don't want to think about it too hard. If you're a member of the Patreon, patreon.com slash John helps you write better, I have a shorthand for this. This is called the Tenet School of Filmmaking because in that movie, there's this moment where we're trying to explain like the, the quantum physics relationship of how some things move in one strand of time and other things move in others. So you're not firing a bullet, but you're catching it or how the bullets fall upward or how the car unflips. And early on in that movie, there's this scene where a guy meets a scientist and they're talking about it. And the lady explains like, oh, the bullet's doing this and that, but it's not a part of our timeline, etc. And she says something to the effect of, don't think too hard about it. If you can take a look at some piece of story and summarize it to, don't think too hard about it. That's plot convenience. Is is one of them bad? No, neither is bad. Sometimes things need to be convenient because they're not so important because we just got to keep the story moving to get to more important stuff. And other times plot holes are only plot holes because we weren't critically paying attention to things. And other times they're plot holes, but so what? The story's still enjoyable. Not everything needs to be explained at all. Sometimes we can just skip stuff. It's okay. We can be curious. We can be so engaged with our story. We wish they spent more time explaining this, doing this, fixing this. But at the end of the day, what does that get us? For instance, there's a lot of people complaining right now that the Wheel of Time is back. Now, I covered the Wheel of Time on Patreon. I didn't care for it. But I didn't care for it because I didn't think it was, you know, interesting and engaging for me. But other people don't like it because, oh my God, what have they done to the books? They haven't done anything to the books. The books are still the books. They've adapted them. They've changed them. So things have become convenient because they're not trying to do the books verbatim one-to-one. They're trying to adapt from the books to tell a different kind of story. The degree of adaptation might not be something you agree with. That degree of adaptation might lead to plot holes. It might necessitate plot convenience, but that's on them. And you don't have to bitch about it because you could just turn it off and move on to something else. It's okay. It's all right that there are plot holes. It's okay that there's plot convenience. It's just not that big a deal. On we go to our last question of the day. 
Question 13, why aren't I seeing more engagement on Twitter with my sales posts? Because Twitter is no longer a best place for sales. Twitter's not. If you're a fascist, if you're a Nazi, if you're an anti-Semite, if you're a bigot, if you're transphobic, if you're homophobic, if you're a white nationalist, if you're a pro-capitalist, if you're a technocrat, an oligarch, uh, or a bootlicker for any of the above, Twitter is perfect for you. Please enjoy it. But if you're not any of those things and you're just trying to sell a book, you may have noticed that the hashtag writing community is no longer what it was. And that's because people have moved on and pretending that you're living in a bubble where nothing matters and everything's fine, just keep going, just ignore all those people, ignore all the bad stuff, ignore the people harmed or affected or traumatized by all these other things, that screams enormous privilege that you probably should do something about. The issue, though, is the reason why your, your posts aren't, aren't working the way they used to is because the algorithm changed. Why did the algorithm change? Because uh, a Nazi bootlicker piece of shit took over. That's a problem. And in doing so, he tailored it to suit his trollish, pro-business, terrible-at-business strategies, which means you can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expect the same result because the whole field has changed. Twitter's no longer hospitable, which means you need to change how things are going, which means you probably should have been paying more attention and being a little less self-absorbed, but it's time to change things. You're seeing less engagement because less engagement is being given to your sales post because this isn't where you should be selling those things. You got to branch out, do more things, pick up and move on. This is critical for a writer it used to be, I know, back in the day. You used to be able just to do one thing and, and, you know, a newspaper loaf of bread only cost a nickel. I know. Dollar used to be a dollar, you know, gas used to be a dollar a gallon. I know. It used to be great. The good old days, whether or not they existed, whether or not they're tinted by nostalgia, let's not think too hard about that right now. What we are thinking about is the fact that things used to be different and wah, wah, I want things to go back to the way they were. I'm very sorry to tell you that things are not going back to the way they were because the shitheads are in charge. What we need to do, what our responsibility is as a creative is to produce a level of adaptability and evolution in ourselves with our creativity. I'm not saying you can't make the book. I'm saying you can't sell the book the same way you used to. It's time to embrace new things. It's try to try new stuff, which is scary and hard, but you can figure it out because at one point, Twitter was new and scary to you too. It's okay. The algorithm fucked you. I know, it sucks. But it's fixable, not the algorithm. We don't want to stay on Twitter and try to keep doing the same thing, but it's time to branch out. Try Blue Sky. Try Mastodon. Try Substack. Try Substack Notes. Try Threads. Try Instagram. Try making your own newsletter. Try jumping to YouTube. Try going to TikTok. Try going to Snapchat. Try a different thing. You're not going to see the same engagement you saw six months, a year, two years, five years ago. Days are done, man. Time to move on. But you can see different engagement. And it'll be okay. You'll figure it out. But you got to keep trying. Adapt. Try. Try again. Experiment. 
Find your path to creative success. And when you need help, ask for help. It'll be hard. It'll be scary. You'll feel like you don't know what the fuck you're doing. You'll make a lot of mistakes. But you'll get where you want to be if you keep trying and keep doing your best. Learn along the way. I want to thank each and every single one of you for checking all this out. Thanks so much for letting me be in your ears for 55-ish minutes. I really appreciate it. Um, If you have any questions at any time for any chat, the best things you can do are write me an email, johnhelpsyouwritebetter at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter. For some reason, I'm still there. Uh, That's twitter.com slash awesome underscore John. Mostly I'm just there because I have two or three friends who still post there occasionally. And every once in a while, um, it's where I can get information about a TV show I want to watch. But beyond that, uh, if you really want to get in touch with me, support everything I'm doing, head over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better or head over to Substack Notes. Uh, I'm frequently there. That's uh, John helps you write better dot substack.com. Jump into the notes over on substack.com. Leave me a message. Find me somewhere. Patreon's usually best. I'm there literally all the time. Uh, if you want. If you have any questions about anything. Large, small, big, messy. Writing, editing, creating, publishing, anything like that. I'm always happy to answer. Also, by uh, hooking up with a Patreon for $2 a month, You not only get exclusive access to all different kinds of stuff that I don't spend enough time talking about on this podcast feed, but you also get uh, watch movies right better and a load of other stuff coming down very, very soon direct to you. And you get to be part of the exclusive Discord community where you can leave me all the messages you want about all different kinds of stuff and we can have a little bit of fun helping you write better. Thanks again for listening. All power to all people. I'll talk to you very, very soon. See you.